in your copy of the Word of God. And if it does get com uncomfortable in here, we can lighten it, breeze it up a little bit. Amen? Just a little bit, yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Praise God. Turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And I want you to rest your eyes on verse 11, where we read, Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Let's read that together. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and we thank you. Oh, God, when we think about all of the things that you protected us from. Father, when we consider how we shouldn't even be here, your tender mercies that you have not dealt with us according to our sins. You've been better than good. And God, our hearts rejoice that we are able to enter into your courts with thanksgiving and to lift up the voices that you've given to us with praise. We bless you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. 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 Praise the Lord for all two of those brothers who clap. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. One of the most beautiful creatures that God has ever made is the bald eagle. Prior to the birth of its offspring, bald eagles go to great length to prepare a safe nest. The male and the female eagle find sharp and strong branches that are meticulously woven and threaded together as individual pieces to make the nest. Animal fur, leaves, and cotton are carefully placed on top of the sharp branches so that the eaglets will be comfortable and warm. Excuse me. Once the female eagle gives birth, the eggs are placed inside of the nest. The male and the female take turns sitting on top of the eggs until they are hatched. The female sits on the eggs most of the time. The eggs are guarded by both the male and the female at all times. When the eagles are hatched, the father brings food to them daily. After six weeks, the once small eaglets are now the size of adult eagles. However, they are not able to fly, so they remain in their nest, and something strange happens. Every day, as in the past, the father 
eagle flies and he gets food and he brings it to the nest. And it, that is, he gets close enough to the nest for the eaglets to smell the food, to see the food, but he does not give them food. Then the mother eagle, she begins to do what is called to stir the nest. She will begin to tear the inside of the nest, the cotton, the leaves, uh, uh, the wool, everything that was soft inside of the nest, she removes it. And so now these eaglets that are the size of adult eagles are still in the nest, but they are unable to fly, but the comfort of the nest has now been taken away. They're filling the, the needles and the pointers from the branches, and they're cold. And they remain there until they have to deal with the now what decision. Forty percent of eagles who take their first flight when they make the decision about now what do not survive that first flight. But the decision is maybe Daddy Eagle will change his mind and bring us some food. Maybe miraculously there will be food provided from the creator or just drop down in the nest. Or the third option is, as the father is tormenting them with the smell and the sight of the food, one of the things that the eagles do, unknowingly and naturally, they begin to flap their wings. And with the flapping of their wings, they develop a strength that enables them to eventually soar high above all other birds. We talked about last week about the elephant in the room. And uh, how there comes time in our lives where God will stir the nest, where he will remove away the cushion, the, the cotton, the clutches, all the things that we've been, we've learned to function within. And the secret that has been hidden is now visible for all to see. So the question becomes, we, as we finish the second part of the sermon, is now what? What do you do once God has removed that which the the covers where those things that were dysfunctional because that is all we have known, they become functional to us. And as I shared on last week, I didn't know I was poor until somebody said, brother, you poor. <laughs> I'm in college and they start describing poverty and I said, that sounds like my address. <laughs> and then my next question was, so what are you going to do about it? Not to myself, I'm thinking, what, why are you telling me I'm poor? if you're not prepared to help me do something about it. On last week, we saw in 1 Corinthians that there was an elephant in the room at the Corinthian church among many issues that they had. One of them was sexual immorality. Uh, he talks about it in chapter 6 where he says, such were some of you. Uh, and starting in verse 9, he says, but do you not know that people who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? And so Paul pulls the cover. He exposes the elephant in the room. He, he, he makes, brings to light those things that have been done in darkness. But in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he, he zeroes in on an even more perverted act that was happening in the church. It was a private sin. 
that had become public, a man was having sexual relations with his father's wife. It was his stepmother, and what we would call that today is incest. The issue was, not only was there this perverted sin that Paul says, not even unsaved people do this, is that these two individuals, at least one of them, was a professing Christian, and they were coming to church on a regular basis, and the leadership of the church, along with the members, knew exactly what was happening. And so Paul says, in response to their cavalier attitude about blatant sin, he says, your glorying, your pride, your comfort with what breaks the heart of God is not good. He says, what, basically, what breaks the heart of God should make us cry. And so he, he exposes the elephant in the room. And so we talked about that, uh, what the elephant was, why the church needs to respond. He said, a little leaven, a little sin that we know something about and do nothing about is like leaven in, 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 a, in a cake. It will spread and ultimately will find its way through the entire family, through the entire church. And something that started with the individual now is stirred in fourth generation. The Bible says that God will, re, will visit the sins of the father even down to the third and the fourth generation. So it's never really just about you. The devil is dealing with you to get to your son and his son and his, his son's son. And, and, and it's up to us. The Bible says that the curse of God's divine judgment on the generations will remain until we love God and prove it by obeying his commandments. So when I'm obedient to the word of God, that's what breaks the curse. That's what breaks the curse. Now the question today, now what? Now that you know that the enemy has been attacking you and you don't want to be ignorant of the enemy's devices, now what? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? And so we looked at the first of two principles. One, the elephant in the room can affect the entire family as in the case of the Corinthian church in chapter 5, it was impacting the entire church. Everybody knew about the, the craziness that was going on in the Corinthian church. The second thing that we began to look at on last time is elephant removal requires four stages. So when someone has hurt you, when some offense has occurred, or if you have been the, the initiator, the perpetrator, you've hurt someone, what do you do with the elephant? When you're seeing that person at the family reunion, when they are visiting uh, your church and everybody's smiling, but you know that everything that your family worked for, when your parent died, all of a sudden things start taking legs and, and you know, rings and other personal items are now gone. What do you do? And you know who it was. So he talks about four stages of how to deal with this. And uh, what, what is recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is really a continuation of what Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the sin of, the, of incest. What happens between the, the, the two books is that by the time Paul writes back to the Corinthian church a second time, the man who was involved in the incestuous relationship, he has followed the church's requirements to get his life together. But the church was refusing to restore him. 
And the reason why is they didn't know how. And unfortunately, too often, the church is like the elder brother. We kill our wounded. We don't rejoice when the prodigal returns. We remind them of everything that they ever did do. And so we want to talk about how do you, how do you fix it when the person who did it is coming back to fix it, to, to make it right. Or sometimes they don't come back to make it right. Sometimes they die before they can. Or sometimes they so, they're so prideful that they won't. But you got to fix this because if you don't, you'll stay broken. That's what this series is about. It's about, I'm broken. Fix me. Fix me. Fix me, Lord. I know that the Lord, he said, I've come to give you life and to give you life more abundant. The Lord came to fix us. By his stripes, we're genuinely healed. And the greatest healing that we need is the healing from sin. That's what the blood of Christ heals us from, that disease. But there's other benefits from the blood of Christ. He will heal you of your broken heart. Your heart, he will restore you. He will deliver you from those demons that have oppressed you, those thoughts that torment you, those relationships that you try to avoid, that Esau in your life that you've been fleeing from. The Lord is saying, I want you to return. Now that it's exposed, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Elephant removal requires four stages, and I want to talk about those four stages. We began to look at that last time. The first thing that you want to do when you have to address the elephant. Now, I'm, I said this too. Don't go digging up every skeleton. We're talking about David today and his decision. Oh, God. Uh, if the Lord were ever, ever to take up, uh, somehow connect a cord to our brain and flash our thoughts on the screen, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, oh, God, we would never come back to church out of embarrassment. But thank you, Jesus, because I know everybody in here is holy and everybody here has got their thoughts on the Lord. But for those folks that don't come to church on a regular, if he put your thoughts up there, oh, God. So stage one of removing the elephant is the revelation of the offense. It helps to remove the confusion about the real problem. It, the revelation, revealing it, pulling the covers off of it, calling it what it is. Jesus says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will do what? It will set you free. Paul does this in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. He says, he, he actually says this. He said, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. He reveals the problem. I've been married for some time now, and one of the things that I've learned, and I'm not attacking my wife. I've really tried to attack the problem. And sometimes we will, she will argue about... <clears throat> You know how you, 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 you get into this heated discussion with somebody, and by the time you get to the end, you realize that you've been talking about two different things? Amen. Or the thing that you've been arguing about, you've just been saying the same thing in a different way? Thank God for makeup kisses. Thank God. Amen. We make up and all that, but, well, how frustrating that is. But when you reveal what, it, what the problem actually is, let's get some clarity. What are we dealing with here? What is the issue? You're not the person, but the problem. Let's separate the problem from the person. There's a man in the church who professes to be a Christian. He's having sexual relations with his stepmother. That's incest. That's sin. Now, the important thing to, 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 to take note of is that when Paul says there's a man in the church, it's interesting, he never mentions the man's name. 
Who is he? What is he? Where does he live? Can you find his information online? You know, what, what? No, he, he doesn't mention the man's name. That's interesting. But there are times when it is necessary to mention the name of the person who hurt you for your healing. Back in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul gives the names of two men who had fallen into doctrinal sin. Do you know that you can fall into doctrinal sin that if you don't say what the Bible says and you make up what you want it to say, that's sin. It's doctrinal sin. You're in er error. God is love, but he's also a God of wrath. So if we only, all we teach is love and not the wrath of God, that person who is neglecting to teach the whole counsel of God is doctrinally in sin. And so Paul calls out their names. He said, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they increase. Stop cussing and talking about stuff that don't mean anything. Stay away from coarse joking. He said, for they will increase unto what? More ungodliness. And their message will spread like cancer. You get around people who are just talking coarsely and saying whatever comes to their mind. And you start cussing whenever you get mad. Guess what? You're going to be, hallelujah, praise the Lord. The next thing is going to come out of your mouth. It won't, it won't be praise the Lord. It spreads like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. So what happens is there are times when there's some Hymenaeuses and Philetuses in your life. Don't name your sons and daughters or Hymenaeus and Philetus. That you, near, you, you, let, you actually need to call their names out as you're talking to the police or as you're talking to that teacher or that employer or if you're saying it for yourself for, the first, for empowering and, and taking, taking, taking uh, charge of that situation. However, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he doesn't mention the person's name. The Apostle Paul reminds us this, that no matter how dark the sin and how desperately hurt you may be, no matter what that sin is, that there's no sin that God can't heal. There's no sin that God can't forgive. Somebody say amen. Aren't you glad about that? The reason why God is able to heal and forgive, no matter how bad the act was, is that God loves us unconditionally. God still loves us. God loves the sinner, but he hates sin. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God, the anger of God, the righteous indignation of God is revealed is on display from heaven against all ungodliness and against all of those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so the wrath of God, God is angry, righteously angry with sinners while still loving the sinner. God loves the sinner. And so a part of the process of making it right when you finally are faced with the elephant in the room, the name is out, the act is out, it's clear, we need to reveal it, but we need to also understand that, that, that we still, we, hate, we may hate what a person did, but we love them just like God loves us unconditionally. Amen. Now, as a child, one of the most dreaded experiences I, could, I can remember is when my mother would say, I'm going to tell your father when he comes home. First of all, that might be at 9 o'clock in the morning. And he ain't coming home until 5.30 that night. 
So I gotta be waiting in, 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 in stress. I didn't know what it was, stress or anxiety, but now I'm, I'm gripping from 9 a.m. in the morning until 5.30 at night, waiting for him to come home. And then he's gonna go through his ritual. He's gonna take a shower. He's gonna eat his dinner. He's gonna drink a glass of wine. Then he's gonna go upstairs and find the, the torture room. And he's going to call, Howard, bring the bell. Oh, Lord, now I got to bring the instrument of punishment along with having waited all these hours. And then you get in there. And you start saying really ridiculous stuff like, what did you do wrong? Why do I need to tell you if she already told you? <laughs> and then, then this is the most outrageous, just, just horrible thing. He said, this is going to hurt me more than it's, what? How is what you about to do? First of all, I waited from 9 a.m. until you got done doing all your business, stressing all day, and now you're going to say out of your mouth, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. After four kids, all adults now, I understand what he means. What he was saying is, I hate what you did. And I don't really want to hurt you, but I love you so much that I have to do the discipline in order to prevent you from doing this again. Now, I guess what? I had, in my entire lifetime, two whoopings from my father. I learned my lesson. I, I, I didn't want to go through that again. And, and so sometimes when you can bring to a person's attention, as the Bible says, if you have been offended, go to the person in private. Tell them what they have done. And if you are able to work it out on a one-on-one -on -one basis, you have solved the problem. It, it's, it's over. Revelation is needed. If you're going to deal with the elephant in the room, somebody got to tell the truth. Why is it necessary? David said, talking about his elephant in the room, in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 4, David was king. You know his sin. He slept with another man's wife. He committed adultery. David shared his personal consequence. He thought he had gotten away with it. But when you are saved, the Holy Spirit just won't leave you alone. He will just, here's what, listen to what David said. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones grew old. I aged prematurely through my groanings all day. I was depressed for day and night. He said, your hand, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into drought, the drought of something. You drained me of all of my energy. When you save and the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, you cannot comfortably practice sin. So we want to deal with the elephant in the room by revealing it, by being honest with ourselves, because until you are, the heavy hand of God will not 
be off of you. Why am I depressed? I, I just I got, an, uh, I got a, a raise. I got a, a job promotion and all those things. Well, you're depressed because you haven't made it right with God. You remember the sin of, uh, in, in Joshua chapter 7? The children of Israel, they walked around the walls of Jericho for six days in total silence. That was a miracle in itself. Now, if you tell people, don't say nothing, and we're going to walk around with our, our, battle, gar- our battle gear, and just walking around the wall, walking around the wall, six days. And on the seventh day, we're going to walk around the wall seven times, and when I say the victory is the Lord's, we're going to all shout together, and we're going to blow the trumpet, and, and, and we're going to see the Lord, because the battle is not really ours. Guess who's the battle? The battle is the Lord. And so the children of Israel, they marched around six times, six times, one day, two days, five days, six days. And on the seventh day, David says, shout! And they said, the battle is the Lord's! And they blew the trumpets, and the walls of Jericho came falling to the ground right before their eyes. How many of you know the Lord will bring some walls down for you? But, but, but you know what? The condition is you need to be obedient. You need to get out of the way. It may not make any sense when he says, love your enemies. And pray. It may not make any sense. If your enemy is hungry, give him food. If they're thirsty, get them. Man, I'm crazy. I don't want to give him dry. I want to give him a lie. I want to make him thirst and, and, and his tongue swell. And, no, no, no. Don't say, give him. I want to watch the diary of an angry black woman and follow her prescription. No, 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 no. We're going to do it. And so there was triumph, there was victory, there was celebration, because just what God said would happen, it happened. And so the next battle, small, little city, Ai, stood before the people and and the promise of God to inhabit the land. And so there were so few people in the town that one of David's generals said, we don't need to send the entire army. Let's send about 300. We got this. We know that we got this. And they attacked the city of Ai, and 66 men are killed and they flee, and now they want to go, we want to go back to Egypt. He brought us out here to die, and we're not going to have victory, and God didn't tell the truth. And, and then the Bible says that Joshua rent his clothes. He tore his garment, and he went before the Lord. You know how Joshua was a good leader, but he was kind of flaky because every time something went wrong, Joshua starts questioning God. And the Lord says there's sin in the camp. One man's sin he didn't know who this person was. He said, I want you to assemble the entire congregation. We're going to get to the bottom of this. We're going to find out where this sin is. That one man's sin, the sin of Achan, they found that he had hidden what God choose, chose to reveal. Once it was revealed, then God was able to deal with it. And then they were able to move forward to victory until some things that are hidden are revealed, until some things that we've been doing that we shouldn't be doing are stopped. We can't go on to victory. We will never defeat our enemies until God is allowed to deal with those hidden things. One person's sin. One one thing that somebody has done to you can wreck you. You say to somebody, and I've had people say this, I go in the room, and I feel like pretty good. I worked out one day a week, and, and I ate six fries instead of seven fries. And, and somebody said, Pastor, you're losing weight. I said, yep. <laughs> Can't you tell? And then you walk into the next room. Oh, you look like you put on a couple pounds. 
there. Man, you better slow down a little bit, because, man, if you keep doing like this, you might just end up with a heart attack or something. I ain't trying to speak nothing into existence, Pastor. You can say that kind of insensitive stuff to somebody, and they never come back to church again. Just because you talked about their weight. That's why you need to ask, well, how old are you? I, first of all, thank God that we're still here. But women don't want to be telling you how old they is. <laughs> now, but my point is this, that we really need to be discerning about how we talk to people because you can offend someone and they become so depressed and discouraged that they actually take their own lives. I was dealing with, the, uh, I listened to a man talk, and he's 31 years old, and I'm listening to him, and he's saying that he's really having difficulty with his mother-in-law, they're trying to sign somebody on our services. And then I'm thinking, well, why would he be signing someone on that's, he's 31, the wife must be pretty, she tried to hang herself. With, an, with her hair dryer and didn't succeed, but she's brain dead. Like, how could somebody be that hurt and that kind of pain with three children and a husband and a family? I want you to know that people, when they come to church, many times they're in great pain and they come here looking for somebody to express the love of Jesus. That's why when we, talk, we start talking about encouraging when pastor's teaching, and somebody, you don't know where I'm at that day. I might need this. <laughs> so I, I, I love Elder Ward. He's going to give you this. Oh, man, you're going to get that from Brother Ward. So, so I'm serious. We don't want to be pretending to be encouragers. But the Bible says encourage one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. We're commanded to be encouragers. It doesn't cost nothing to smile. Here's the second step, stage for removing the elephant out of the room. Say reprimand, which involves confrontation. Not physicuffs, but confrontation. Going back to chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians verses 3 and 5, it says, For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged, I've already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with the Spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the authority and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, here's the confrontation. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the body that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I shared this last time. There are times when people need to be asked to leave the church. So Paul says, when there's no repentance, when the person won't turn from their sin, their sin becomes like leaven. And I gave the illustration. Sometimes in your home, you have a child that won't do what they're supposed to do, and they're under your watch, and they're living in sin. You have to say to them, you got to go. That doesn't mean you don't love them. It simply says that their time to keep sin from spreading, from signing off on things that God will eventually judge that person for, you need to take confrontational action. Reprimand. Say reprimand. Which means that you need to decide on a plan of action. Decide on a plan of action. Don't be all emotional. I'm going to straighten this out. I'm sick and tired. Am I going to push me around no more? No, no, no. Nope. He says, I've already decided or I've already made a judgment 
And here's how you make the judgment. You start with the word of God. David said, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. What is the issue? What does God have to say about the particular sin, that particular hidden thing that's now revealed? What does the word say about it? Then secondly, you should seek godly counsel. The Bible says there's wisdom in the multitude of godly counsel. Not everybody's counsel. I'm going to call my mom. Is your mom saved? Is she spiritual? If she's not, don't call mom. And then in your calling, don't keep calling until you find somebody who agrees with you. Because godly counsel will direct you back to the word. Here's the third thing. Not only do you, so you want to be in the word, but you also want to be directed by the spirit. The Bible says that the spirit of God will direct you in truth to the truth of the Lord. In John chapter 16, verse 13. So you need to be spirit led, spirit filled. And the third thing I've already mentioned, godly counsel, godly counsel. The Bible says if any man lack wisdom, let him do what? Ask God. That's the fourth thing. Now you need to be praying. Lord, give me wisdom in how to address this. Give me grace to say what I'm going to say with season and in, in, in the spirit of love, seasoned with grace. Somebody say amen. We almost, we're moving on. We're moving on. Say I'm moving on. Solomon was David's, one of David's 20 sons. David had 20 sons. He was an amazing king but he was a horrible father. He was very successful like many men outside of the home. But David, a man after God's own heart, was a disaster at home. He had 20 sons. And the youngest of his 20 sons was Solomon. And according to the, 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 up, the, the, uh, the hierarchy of leadership, whenever the father died, the oldest son, was supposed to inherit the first bright, and also, in this case, he would have been the king. But the Lord told David that Solomon, his youngest son, and some suggest that when David, uh, he had ruled for 40 years, when David was about to die, he anointed, he appointed Solomon as the, his successor. Solomon was as young as, some commentators suggest, that he was as young as 12 years old. Others say he may have been as old as as 20. But listen to what Solomon does when, when David says, all right, I'm, I'm revealing to you what God is showing me. Listen to what, what, what he says in 1 Kings chapter 3. Are you still with me? Yes. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. He said, I'm a little child. I do not know how to go out and to come in. And, and your servant is in the midst of your people who have, you have children a great people, too numerous for me to number and count. Therefore, give your servant an understanding heart to judge the people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people, this great people of yours? And so what Solomon says, when it comes to dealing with the kind of challenges that God allows in my life. I don't know what has happened to you. I don't know who did it. I don't know how it's affected you. I don't know what, what your thoughts are about it. But I do know that if you go to the Lord, Solomon said, give me an understanding heart. I do not, Lord, directing God, because I don't know how to handle this. Have you ever come up to a, in, in circumstances in your life, you don't know what to say, you don't know what to do. Well, what you should say and do is go before the Lord. And the Lord says, Solomon, 
I'm, a, I'm about to write you a blank check. <laughs> I'm about to let you fill in the blanks. He said, you did not ask for your enemy's lives. You didn't ask for long life for yourself. You didn't even ask for fortune. But I'm going to give you all three of those. But the most important thing that I'm going to give you in order to deal with your elephant, the challenge that I'm allowing to come your way, I am going to give you wisdom. I'm going to make you the wisest man who ever lived. I want you to understand that there's wisdom that is available to you. God will show you how to deal with your circumstance. I don't care how tall the mountain. I don't care how, uh, how insurmountable it may seem. If you go before the Lord in earnest prayer, he will answer. He will show you what to do. So you need to, you need to make a decision. You also need to declare the authority of the Lord. He said, I, though I'm absent, Paul speaking, in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever you read all three titles, Paul said, pull out all of the credentials now. When you're going up against strongholds, when you're going up against generational curses, when you're going up against things that the devil has bound your family members by, how he has blocked your success, how he's robbed you of your joy, when you, you need to go, you need to make a declaration in the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. That's how you deal with elephants in the room. I read about the, the, spy, the seven sons of Sheba. They were itinerant exorcists. They would go around trying to exercise demons. You remember that in the book of Acts? That's in the Bible. And, and they saw, the, the Bible says that the, the apron, the, the, the handkerchiefs of Paul and, and his shadow, when he would walk by, people would get healed and deliverances would occur. Can God do that? Yes, he can. Jesus said greater works than he. He can still do that. I'm not going to tie the hands of God. Uh, and, and if he chooses to do that, just make sure you catch this one. I drop it. Amen. <laughs> Don't catch my cold, but catch the. Amen. Praise the Lord. But so, so when the seven sons of Sheba saw the power and the authority that Paul operated in, they, they came upon a man who was genuinely demon-possessed. And they said, in the authority of the name of the, of the Christ, the Jesus Christ that Paul serves, we demand you to come out. And the demons recognized, they said, we know Paul. And we know Jesus, but we also know that you don't know the Jesus that you are declaring authority through. And the scripture says that that one man possessed by a demon, just one demon, jumped on all seven of those sons, and he beat them so badly that he stripped them of all their clothes. And now you got in the Bible streakers running through. There's a second group of streakers running through the Bible who've been stripped naked and beaten because they try to operate in the authority, making a declaration. The only way that you can declare the authority of the name of Christ in your circumstance to overcome the elephants in your life is because you know him. We can do all things through him because we know him. If you know that name, when the devil comes against you, when circumstances seem impossible, you need to pull out the full authority. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, get thee behind me, Satan, and the devil will have to flee. I don't know how many times in church services, it hasn't happened here, when you preach in the word and somebody was 
under the influence of Satan, and they start talking or speaking in tongues or, or, or doing something that was disruptive and, and distracting people from what they needed to hear in the word. And I had to stop. And I say, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I declare that you have to shut up, Satan. And that person would either get up and walk out or shut up. There's authority in that name. Somebody said there's authority in that name. Now, if you don't, so now we need to make a decision in this reprimand stage. We need to make a declaration in the name of Christ, but you need to depend on that authority. It doesn't matter if you have it if you never use it. Paul says, put such a, such a person out. He said, in the power of the Lord, in the power of the Lord, Jesus said to Peter, who do men say that I am? He said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he aced that test. Son of the living God! And Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you in Matthew chapter 16. And then Jesus adds, Peter, upon this kind of faith, not Peter, your kind of faith that I am the son of the living God. I am Emmanuel. Uh, based on this kind of faith, I am going to build my church. The foundation of the church is based on faith in who Jesus actually is. He is the God man. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice he says gates of hell. There are multiple gates that the devil constantly keeps erecting and, and putting in front of the church. And the biggest one he keeps putting in front of the church is division and, and distrust. And, and so he erects those gates. He said, but guess what, Peter? Here's what you can depend on. I'm going to give you some keys. <laughs> he didn't say a key. I'm going to give you some keys for every gate that Satan erects in your life that tries to prevent the church from prevailing. You have a key. You have authority. You have the ability to go through and to have victory. Are you using your keys? Or have you turned them in? You have keys. You have authority over whatever it is that has happened to you. You're not a victim. You are a victor in Jesus. The Bible says greater is he that is in who? In you than he that is in the world. I am more than a conqueror. If God be for me. Is he for you? It's really the, the, the proper uh, rendition of that verse, the translation should be if God. It should be since God. Since he's for me, who can? Some, some folks are going to stand against you. Memories are going to come against you. The devil's going to attack you. They will stand. But who will effectively stand? No weapon. No weapon. The devil will come in like a flood. But the Lord said, I will. I will what? I will raise up a standard. Somebody say amen. amen. So we need to reveal what is it you're dealing with. There needs to be reprimand. You need to confront it. You also need a third thing. You need, to re you need repentance. And that's when we come to the last part of this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, here's what Paul says in the third stage. Here's what starts the real healing. David put it like this. He said, when I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquities that I, that I had hidden, and I said, I confess my transgression to you, and the Lord did what? The Lord forgave the iniquities of my sin. In chapter uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the person who was guilty of the sin in chapter 5 asked for forgiveness. They were ready to repent. 
And so when someone who has hurt you wants to repent, you have to, in, in, in the right thing to do in the Lord is to accept their desire to repent. We're almost done. Stay with me. Somebody say amen. amen. And repentance is not just something you say when you get caught. Repentance results from godly sorrow. The Spirit of God has literally broken your heart. You are sad. You feel guilt and shame. That does not, it's not sustained because the Lord doesn't keep us in guilt and shame. But the desire of a repentant heart, is, it's the desire says, I am willing to suffer the consequences. I'm not dictating that I'll sit down for three months. I'm at the mercy of those who are making the decision. That's what repentance says. Repentance says that what I did, I do not ever intend to do again. I'm turning from sin, and I'm going to walk in obedience. That's how you know when somebody has repented. Their actions, their attitude will change. Somebody say amen. Here's the last thing. Here's the last thing. We're almost done. Restoration, stage four, that leads to, re to reconnection of that which was broken is stage four. He says, now regarding the one who started all of this, chapter, five, chapter two, verses five through eight, the person in question who caused all this pain, I wanted you to know that I am not the one injured. In this, Paul says, I'm not injured. This, this, I'm, I'm, I'm past what he did. With a few exceptions, all, all of you, they, the church where this occurred, the wife, the husband who was involved in this, they were offended. So I don't want you to come down too hard, even though you were offended. What the majority of you agreed on as punishment is enough. Now is, it's time to forgive this man and help him back on his feet. If all of you do, if all you do is pour guilt, you could very well drown the person in it. My counsel is to pour out love. So there comes a time when somebody who has hurt you, they need to be reconciled. You need to move on. You need to forgive them. You need to give them a chance to try again. Now, let me quickly share what reconciliation involves. The penalty for what you did to others may be permanent. Some people may do something, they're drunk and alcoholic, and they hit, they're out of, out of control, they hit and kill your son, your daughter. They're going to jail. And that felony will be on their record permanently, but your forgiveness is not conditioned on whether they go to jail. There's some things that you can do that, you will, that will be with you until you go to your grave. But the pain of that is not permanent. Aren't you glad about that? The purpose of godly pain is to prevent you from repeating the same action. So when God causes the pain from our sin, the, go the goal is, is not to keep punishing the, us, but to bring us to a place where we don't want to, until the pain of remaining the same becomes greater than the pain of change, we will remain the same. Does that make sense? Perfection is not the goal of repentance. A commitment to consistent, observable obedience is what God requires. That's what God requires, a commitment to being obedient. Somebody, they may fall again. Anybody ever said they would never do something, you did it again? Amen. Okay, amen. So, the, but the goal is, where's the consistency? 
How long does a person have to suffer before you restore them? You don't know what they did. Well, okay. When they have repented and are demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, he said, what the majority of you have agreed, the punishment is enough. There comes a time when it's enough. Stop bringing it up. Every time you lose in the argument, you don't get to bring that up. You remember when? You got that old ace in the hole. No, you can't keep bringing that up. You can't keep bringing that up. There's a time when it's your, the discipline is enough. When you over-discipline a child, that's called abuse. And sometimes in our, when we've done wrong, we will allow people to abuse us in their self-righteous, self, it's not righteous indignation, it's self-righteous indignation. Here we go, here we go. And children are great for this. Someone has said that children are the greatest, greatest historians. They remember everything that you ever did and stuff that you never did do. But they are the worst interpreters. So they remember everything you did. My son told me one time, when you slapped me in my face, I slapped you in your face. I never slapped a kid in the face. But in his mind, I slapped him in the face. Now, I've done a couple other things, but never, or punch. Never do no punch and slap, and I'll grab you in a minute. But my point is that sometimes people remember things that they think you did because when you don't forgive, you recreate stuff. You'd have made, a, you'd have made the blob. And you can't let your child keep punishing you about something that you didn't do or you can't remember you did or they never said anything to you when you did it. So the, the point is there comes a time when it's enough. It's enough. Let me move on. I'm going to finish with this. Prepare the path of, of, of restoration through forgiveness when possible. He says, now is the time to forgive the man and to help him back to his feet. Forgiveness is never optional. Restoration is always achievable, is the, is, the, is the optimal goal. Sometimes you can't be reconciled to somebody who robbed you, took your ATM card, and bankrupt you. Sometimes you can't give them your card again. If you do, fool you twice. That's on you. Uh, there, there's somebody, there's so some, there are times you always forgive, but you can't always bring somebody back to your house. Pour out your love when the enemy, pour, pour your love out where the enemy has sown seeds of dis destruction. And he says, what we ought to do when a person stands, when a person actually wants to repent and be restored, instead of holding their judgment and the memory of what they did over their heads, we, need to, we really need to shower that person with love. That is so contrary to our human nature. We want to hurt people who have hurt us. And the Lord says, once the person has repented, they paid for their crime. They paid for their sin. Now our, we should embrace them. Amen. Embrace them with love. Some of you may remember this. I told you about there's a time I should have been in church, but as a, as a person who was considering God, I would go to church one Sunday hang out with my boys on the opposite Sunday. And I remember uh, I got a new set of pants and shirt, and I wanted to, to really display my bicycle skills to the women, the girls. And I was riding my bike when I should have been at church, 
And somebody called me as I'm riding my bike. I mean, I was going as fast as I could take these legs to go. And I hit the brakes, and I hook slid. Oh, it was pretty until I hit the side of a, back then they didn't have fiberglass cars. They had real steel. The car didn't move. There wasn't a dent in the car. But I, when I got up off of the ground, my steering wheel was twisted. My, 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 uh, the pedal, the, the, the tire was bent. I had a black eye, a bloody nose. My new pants had holes in them. And only one person laughed. I remember that. I got up, act like I, you know, John Wade, I ain't hurt. I ain't hurt. Ah, okay. So I got up, and guess what? I, I took my little bike, walked around the corner, parked in front of church. I went inside the church. Yeah. My black eye, my bloody nose, and I sat there. And I was hurting, physically hurting. A week later, I still had bruises. And, but the, the powerful thing about when you injure yourself physically, when I think about how I hit that car now, I don't feel that pain. Aren't you glad that the Lord doesn't cause you to feel the pain of things, stupid stuff you did? Can you imagine every time you think about the time you fell down the steps or hit your head or crashed into the side of a car that you could actually feel the pain? God removes the pain. He knows that it would overload our emotional circuit. Our, we, our brain couldn't handle it. When we still keep reflecting on pain, we got to go. We go to the doctor. We get all kinds of epidurals and things like that. We don't want to live in that kind of pain. But when you have emotional pain, and every time the devil want to just remind you, and you feel that thing just like it happened over, it just happened, it happened yesterday, flashbacks, triggers, I want you to know that you don't have to continue to experience that. Now I'm not going to allow the devil to keep me in bondage. I'm not going to keep feeling this pain. I'm going to deal with these elephants the way God says. And then you're going to walk in victory. And you will truly be able to rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you.